and how can the public be assured or take comfort in knowing that the legal services that are being provided are are appropriate or that they're right or how they're being told how to do their tax return or prepare their will or their power of attorney that they're 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 legal or that they're valid or that they're being done appropriately and that the people who are using them aren't being taken advantage of so uh, you know so all those flowers can be out there but how does that protect the public Hello, and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And today we have a great uh, conversation with uh, Teresa Donnelly, who is the treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario, the head honcho, yes. Uh, But before Julie uh, gets into that and tells you a little bit more, we just want to briefly plug to stick around as always for the in other news segment at the end of this episode because we have this week again another new in other news correspondent as I like to call them so last week we had our research assistant Charlotte and she will be back again this week we have another wonderful research assistant Shannon Meekle will be doing in other news so stay tuned for her debut as a correspondent of in other news yeah I really like the fact that we're giving our research assistants some experience at being legal journalists and yes. uh, and opinion makers. So absolutely, uh, I, I I hope they're enjoying it, and I hope that the <laughs> listeners are too. But back to Teresa. So Teresa is the treasurer, as as you've already said, Dana. That's in effect the the chair of the Law mm. Society of Ontario, which means that in practice she is the leader of the Ontario legal profession. And each time the benches who make up the Law Society's parliament as such, which we call convocation, vote on, on a leader. Teresa was first elected by convocation in June 2020, and then for a second term in June 2021, uh, although she's actually been a member of convocation as a bencher since 2015. Now, Teresa does have a quite unusual background for a Law Society treasurer because we usually see them coming from a private practice background, whereas in fact, Teresa was a prosecutor for 26 years with the Ministry of the Attorney General, And she specialized in work on sexual violence cases. And in fact, from 2015 to 2020, she was one of a group of seven prosecutors in the province who made up the sexual violence advisory group. And their work was focused, among other things, on improving the victim's experience in the criminal justice system. And I think you'll see from what Teresa and I talk about, how that experience, that work has really in many ways shaped how she thinks about her role as treasurer and some of the things that she wants to do with during her mandate. For example, she's taken a special interest in promoting more open discussion of mental health challenges for lawyers. And she's also been supporting uh, a committee process and consultation regarding the the long vexed question of expanding the paralegal license, Mm. to expand or not to expand, to include (laughs) some family matters. The committee's proposal, uh, which when I interviewed Teresa was, you know, in play uh, for a family legal service provider license for paralegals, 
was due to come to a vote before convocation on February the 24th, but this has now been delayed amid many rumblings of discontent in the family bar. So I asked Teresa about this, recorded earlier to the postponement of the debate, but also a lot of other topics that we think at NSRLP are important for both lawyers and for the users of the legal system. So let's listen. So, Teresa, thank you so much for doing this interview today. I want to kick off, though, because in so many ways, this podcast is a way to introduce you by beginning with your own background. You were a prosecutor for 26 years, and for five of those years, you were part of a special team in Ontario working to enhance the prosecution of sexual offences and the victim experience in the criminal justice system. And you've told me you have learned a lot of things from those experiences and particularly from the experiences of victims. So can I start by asking you, what are some of those important insights that you've learned from victims that really stay with you? I start by saying I just was so privileged in my career working at the Ministry of the Attorney General. Uh, I spent a, a lot of time working in intimate partner violence and sexual violence. And the majority of women or the majority of victims in both of those are women. Yes. So and when I when I talk, Julie, I, I know I know about your book about going public and you talk about it as a survivor story. I'm going to talk about it from the vent. When I speak about the people that I dealt with, I'm going to speak about them as, as victims under, as that term is defined under section two of the criminal code, person against whom an offense has or is alleged to have been committed. I started my career in the Crown's office when I went there in 1994 with, as co-counsel on a 30 victims, a 33 victim sexual assault. Oh my goodness. At that time, they were they were looking at uh, training schools. So um, the prosecution that I was involved in uh, involved an accused who was a guard at the Grandview Training School for Girls. Right. So we had 33 victims from across the province, different backgrounds, uh, and I spent three years on that prosecution, and it was an, an incredible learning opportunity in terms of just the remarkable courage of the women that I met with. So these were girls who were victimized, who then by the time we met them were adult women. Yes. And just the courage, power, the resilience, the developing an understanding of, of so many things, how difficult it is to disclose. Yes. So, and, and I talk about difference between disclosure and reporting, because I think that they're different. Disclosing is, is telling someone. Sometimes people can't even tell anyone. And then, and then to well, go- Well, I didn't from, for years. And that's, and then, it, but the second part of that is, is then the reporting. Yes. And by reporting, I mean, into the formal reporting of two authorities to the police. So, you know, it's, it's to be able to disclose, to tell somebody, then to go on to report to the police and then to go on to participate in a prosecution, to testify. And that, that experience of participating in prosecution, as I know from my own personal experience, is incredibly traumatic. So what is your reaction when you hear what we hear so often in the rhetoric around reporting of sexual offences, that there is this apparently reduced credibility in the allegations if they come many years after the event, whereas, 
you know, those of us who are survivors know that it often takes that long to be able to summon up the courage. I think there's kind of two parts to that, Julie. One is the myth that sexual violence victims are more likely to fabricate an offense. So the minute anybody says they were sexually assaulted, uh, that you have to look, you know, got to cast that critical eye and be awful suspicious because you, you start from the myth that they're more likely to fabricate. So exactly. I think that's that's one part of it. But the second part of it is what you've is the, the delayed disclosure. And that is if they do come forward and report that you got to be suspicious that it's not true and because they've delayed in reporting. But the Supreme Court of Canada told us literally decades ago in a case called DD that, that you can't look at look solely at the delay in the in, in reporting and use that against to draw an adverse inference against the credibility of a sexual assault victim. That's been the law, the law for yeah. years. It's getting over these ingrained notions, rape myths uh, that are ingrained in, in some people's minds. And, and it's these myths and stereotypes that are ingrained in the question you asked me. The yes. myth that sexual assault victims are more likely to fabricate. And secondly, is if they delay in disclosure, that that's, that's a sign of fabrication as well. I know that you have also since taken a particular interest in championing more discussion, more open dialogue about mental health issues in the legal profession, because we know, and it's been, it's been documented for years, that lawyers suffer particularly high levels of mental health challenges and use self-medication like alcohol and drugs, but there is still a lot of denial in the community around how difficult this is. And, you know, I'm thinking coming from this background in which you worked with, with survivors, with victims, and you understood what their challenges were, you know, and now you're very much active and very much an advocate for more open discussion around mental health challenges in the legal profession. Are those two things connected in any way? Yes, I think they are. Uh, I think they are interrelated, that they're connected. Like, so what I, I, I come really from two different vantage points when I come to these conversations, because I come as a prosecutor yes. with my knowledge and understanding about trauma, about uh, the impacts of trauma on people. So really spent a lot of time as a sexual violence prosecutor, understanding about the neurobiology of trauma uh, and trauma informed practice. But I, I also understand, you know, the practice of law. <laughs> we set these incredibly high standards for ourselves. We set them for the people that we work with yeah. too. It's demanding, like just even the hours of work, the expectations for some people, billable hours, uh, clients, yeah. caseloads, you know, there's these this so stressful and it can start as a student with licensing examinations and continue you know meeting deadlines you know dealing with client issues and then the piece that also i bring is that the hearing of the horror like i've mm. said julie i've seen and i've heard things that i can't unsee and i can't unhear and I'm, I'm like, there are other people and other lawyers like me. And it's this whole idea that we can't admit, you know, that we could be susceptible to vicarious trauma that we could carry with us into our lives. What is it that's going to unlock this box? Because I know that even getting people to complete the National Wellbeing Survey was hard. 
And I know that many of you know, the students that I've taught over the years, especially when they're still relatively new in legal practice, they don't want to acknowledge to anybody that they work with that there might be something that would make them anything less than perfect. So what do we do to change that? Well, we, we need to we need to continue these conversations, Julie. Yeah, yeah. And we need to we need to talk about lived experience. Like, I mean, again, I, I draw parallels, right? To the sexual violence work. Like, yes. look at you having the courage to talk about your lived experience as a sexual violence survivor. Like, that's amazing. And you do it because it empowers others. We need to do similar things for in terms of mental health and lawyers and paralegals and students uh, who face these these lived experiences and so i don't i don't know what i don't have the answer but i know that part of it is conversation so to have these leaders in the profession talking about it uh to to have our mental health summit uh, last year was two four-hour sessions we had 4300 uh people register uh, we had 900 people since watch it. Uh, we, we have these just amazing conversations. We're launching a well-being and resource center for lawyers and paralegals and students. So that's going to be sort of a microsite on our Law Society website. Okay. Really important. You know, I'm a big advocate of sort of this one-stop shop, like go to a place where you can get assistance. I need to move you on to issues of regulation, more of the traditional stuff that you tend to talk about out with the treasurer of the Law Society, although I have to say that I'm very happy to have a treasurer that I can talk to about sexual violence and mental health as well. But there are some really interesting and important things happening that I want to get your take on, Teresa. So the Society has established a sandbox. And just so that listeners who are not familiar understand what this is, the idea of a sandbox, which we've seen other regulators in British Columbia, Utah, Washington State, Florida, and elsewhere, the idea of this sandbox is to experimentally offer non-lawyer services. Um, and in the case of the Law Society of Ontario, the sandbox specifically talks about technology-based legal services. So tech companies who under the current rules can't partner with a law firm or invest in a law firm, they will be able within this experimental period to participate and offer legal services, which will then be evaluated. And the idea is that, you know, having been given an exemption from the usual requirements of being licensed for the pilot period, then they could receive a license or a continuing exemption to go on following that. So the, the sandbox has all this promise, but it's also controversial because it still essentially sets the law society up as the controller of the license. And, you know, there is there are questions, there are bound to be questions about just who is going to get helped through the sandbox services, who is unable to afford legal services or access legal services at the moment. And I know we don't have data on this yet, but I would really like to know where you see the sandbox taking the Law Society of Ontario forward in terms of a conversation about regulation and whether or not it's an assumption that the Law Society will still continue to be, if you like, the mega reg regulator for all the different potential categories of licensees. Why are we doing this? We know, and you know, with your work uh, with the Self-Represented uh, Litigants Project, that we're facing a critical need with respect to access to justice. So, and the pandemic has not made things any, any better. 
so we know that every day members of the public face barriers to accessing the services that they need. Right. And so, those barriers are mostly money. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we are at the at Law Society. Part of our role is to facilitate access to justice. So this project, what you would call the sandbox, uh, is we call A to I or access to innovation. And it allows providers of innovative technological legal services, which is to me, like if I could just simplify that down, like apps and websites and things. Right. Um, right. To uh, provide to provide legal services. So what it is is you refer to it as non-lawyer, but it's not limited for for us. It could be lawyers, paralegals, tech companies, nonprofits, and right. they would apply. But it could also be people who are not normally licensed by the society. Yeah. Yes. Think in terms of uh, tax preparation software or online platforms that guide you through preparing. Um, help you prepare your will or power of attorney right. or a document when you're in dispute with your landlord, this public facing or this direct to public legal technology. So when, when I started, I said this whole need about access to justice and our numbers are that, you know, more than 80% of Canadians don't seek professional assistance right. for their legal issues. And that impacts on them physically, mentally, socially, financially yes. on their well-being, you know, let's tie it back into our last conversation, yes. but it, it impacts on them. And so this project that we're launching, this A to I, can help people access new and innovative kinds of legal services and assist them to make informed choices because the law society is involved in terms of standards and other things that would build comfort with the users of these legal services. So I think okay, it's, I'm just I'm, I'm just going to stop you right there and ask you about that because, and this is going to come up in a minute when I I also would like to ask you today about the um, family legal service provider. Is it the best route forward? Members of the public might ask to have the organization that regulates and you know oversees the legal profession also be given um, the in charge hat over other providers of services um, who might fall outside the usual licensing requirements. So is it going to be a good thing if tech companies offering these kinds of legal services, and I know that many of the people who listen to the pod will have already, you know, they'll have found rocket law, they'll have found divorce mate, they'll have found a lot of these services out there online. Is it appropriate for the law society to be regulating them or would it not be better to say, we just want to let a thousand flowers bloom and we're just going to encourage these service providers to experiment, do some evaluation, but we're not going to stay in charge of whether or not they are permitted to offer those services. Well, we're a public interest regulator, right? So, you know, what's missing, I think, in letting all these flowers bloom is how do we protect the public? Right. And how can the public be assured or take comfort in knowing that the legal services that are being provided are, are appropriate or that they're right or how they're being told how to do their tax return or prepare their will or their power of attorney, they're legal or that they're valid or that they're being done appropriately and that the people who are using them aren't being taken advantage of. So, uh, you know, so all those flowers can be out there. 
but how does that protect the public? And part of the, and that's, we, we're a public interest regulator in regulating legal services. You know, it's the kind of question that the listeners to this podcast, you know, want to hear what you have to say again. And it does come up again in the context of the family legal services provider. Let's just be honest, this issue has been around for a long time at the Law Society. Previously, there were the Bon Carlo um, recommendations, which were rejected by convocation. Um, And this is a kind of a second kick at the can. And of course, there are paralegals who have specialist license in particular areas, but as yet in Ontario, um, despite the fact that more family litigants go without representation than any other type of litigant, um, we're still you know, hung up on whether or not anybody other than a lawyer can offer any kinds of family services. So you have, as you said, done a great deal of consultation and the NSRLP helps with that consultation. We had some focus groups uh, with self-represented litigants asking them about their attitude towards paralegals offering some family law services. And one of the concerns they raised was that having had very poor experiences with bringing complaints to the Law Society, um, and we do have some data on this now, and Rempel, who writes for our blog quite often, has uh, laboriously picked through the tribunal figures and can tell us that uh, around 10% of the cases that get to an investigation stage and then to the tribunal are from members of the public, but almost 70% of the complaints come from members of the public. So you can understand that there is a little bit of a skepticism. This is what we heard in our focus groups about the Law Society now being the people who would oversee and protect the public in relation to family paralegals. What what would you say to somebody who felt skeptical about the Law Society's ability to do that? Well, the Law Society, as I said, is a public interest regulator. We've been around for 225 years as a public interest regulator. That's what we do. Um, I I, uh, understand uh, what you talk about, about complaints. I, in my other career, would think about it in terms of reports to the police and the numbers you talk about uh, in terms of filtering through to complaints to the law society, I would think about in terms of complaints filtering through that actually make it to trial. We're a public interest regulator. It doesn't mean that that everybody is going to be happy about what the outcomes are no, or how discipline matters proceed. Um, and I'm not sure that that's the proper measure, uh, but it certainly is something, Julie, that that we need to be aware of. We I think public think about- faith in the process is a really, I, I think you will agree that's an important thing. So that's that's really yes. why I raise this at this yeah, point. I, I do agree. I mean, and that's the whole thing with the with the, the legal professions. We have to have the confidence of the public exactly. and the legitimacy of the public or yes. else our legal system doesn't work. Our justice yes. system doesn't work. So here's another question that I think might get asked in this debate over the uh, the new recommendations. The recommendations suggest, and I know this all has to be worked out in more detail still, obviously, but they suggest that six to eight months of further education is, is required for uh, a paralegal or someone who wished to set themselves up as a family legal services provider to get this license. And I know, and I've already heard, um, some people say, well, isn't that rather more training in family law than many family lawyers have who probably have just taken one course as part of their undergraduate program? What do you think about, you know, finding the right balance there that the public feel that people have been properly trained, but on the other hand, do they need to be trained more than family lawyers? 
Well, we are we benefit at the Law Society from experts who provide us with advice uh, about about so education, competencies, uh, looking at the paralegal. Uh, program itself uh, and determining what are the competencies to do the work that has to be done. That's but we haven't done that about program. legal education yet for lawyers. I mean, I think that you did an amazing job actually in pulling out the competencies. That was, you know, as an educator, that was impressive what you did. But my point is really, we're not doing it with the law schools. We're just doing it with paralegal training. We should be, should we, you not be doing it with both? Well, I would say that the Federation of Law Societies of Canada is involved in the national requirement with respect to law schools. So um, I'm not going to venture into something you're, that's outside gonna, my area. You're going to leave that one to them. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Well, look, last, last question about the paralegal report. Um, one of the comments that was made on Twitter, and this, this brings me back you know, to what we were talking about before in terms of the sandbox. Um, you may have seen Chris Bentley tweeted, when almost 80% of people can't afford or don't use a lawyer, should their choices be limited? So again, it's this question of, yes, the Law Society is looking at other kinds of ways to get legal services to people who don't currently access them and can't afford to access them. But is this idea of continuing to require licensing, is that really the only way forward that the society sees itself going? Or would you imagine gradually releasing the grip on some of these other categories? Or would do you see the responsible thing to do as the law society being responsible for overseeing any kind of paraprofessional in relation to law? Um, well, I guess what I would say to that is, um, I, I go back to the being the public interest regulator and what's in the public interest. And I, and I don't, I don't know that in, you know, two minutes in the end of this podcast, I that, know. <laughs> that, that, that we're going to really be able to explore that issue about what is the future provision of legal services. Um, and, but I'm just going to go back to the focus, which, you know, ties into the education and the training for family legal service providers, which ties into the access to innovation uh, sandbox, which is about public protection. And that's what we're all about. Thank you so much for doing this, Teresa. This has been a great conversation and hopefully we can have some follow up ones as well. Well, I just say, you know, the thing that drove me for 26 years to work with victims is what I learned from them and the people that I met. And you are one of those people who oh, inspire me, who inspired me every day of my career to have the courage to do what you've done is amazing and impressive. And, and people like you shaped who I am and, and, and assisted me throughout my career in trying to make a difference. So thank well, you. That's very kind of you to say that, Teresa. Thank you. Thank you. So you and Teresa touched on a lot of things in this conversation, and there's a couple of things that I think we want to talk a little bit more about and kind of bring a little more context in particular. And one of those is uh, the topic of this national well-being survey came mm. up. 
And we were just, you know, talking about it a little bit. You were helping me understand kind of what that is. Uh, my understanding is that this is a, a research project that the LSO is undertaking to understand the state of mental health among the legal profession. Yeah, and, not and that this LSO, it's actually a national project. Sorry, and yes, all that's of the right. Societies are participating in it. Yeah, right, which is fantastic and needed, and clearly very needed, um, because as as Teresa alluded to, I guess they've had a hard time getting people to even respond to this anonymous survey, which is interesting and kind of speaks to the problem itself, that there is such an reticence among lawyers to even talk about this issue. Uh, and that's, that's a real problem. It, it really, it really is. I mean, Teresa recognizes herself, but, you know, the first phase of the research, which has already been completed, um, was an anonymous survey, which um, Teresa, you know, promoted in Ontario, trying to get as many people to complete it as possible. But despite the fact that it was anonymous, despite the fact that the leader of the profession was promoting it, as she acknowledges, uh, it was very difficult to get people to participate. And, you know, it comes back to this question of what is it that people feel they are risking um, by speaking out about mental health problems, um, even apparently in what was going to be a completely private way, almost as if, you know, the, there needs to be a bit of a self-denial as well as a mm. denial in the profession about the, the problem existing. And, you know, I, I would, I think it's a good moment to remind listeners that one of the people who's really been speaking up in a very impactful way about her own personal struggles with mental health, yet her great competence as a lawyer is Beth Beatty, who did a podcast with us back in March of 2019. It's called Shaking Off the Mental Health Stigma. Um, we also have one with Orlando De Silva, who spoke about and has continued to speak uh, widely, also at law schools about his own mental health struggles. And you know, other than having people who are, you know, being willing to disclose like that about their personal issues and somebody as influential as, as Teresa Donnelly speaking up about it, it's hard to see what can be done to kind of break this pattern, this cycle of denial yeah. and lack of recognition. I think, you know, exactly as she said, that we just, uh, there needs to continue to be conversation. There needs to be more conversation. And hopefully as more leaders among the profession like Beth and Orlando and Teresa speak up and share their own experiences, I, you know, hopefully that culture will will slowly change and people will feel more comfortable discussing it. Um, hopefully, but I think certainly it's, it's worth, you know, acknowledging that, you and I, Dana, as people who work with law students, are aware that for those who are you know, less established in the profession than mm -hmm. Beth or Orlando or Teresa, uh, this still looks um, pretty scary. Yeah. And you know, it's, it might be you know, all very well for people who already have established careers to be able to say this, which is not to yes. in any way um, you diminish know, the importance no. of what they're doing. But, you know, we are a profession that demands, you know, very high levels of performance in certain ways. And, yeah. you know, I might say even a bit of a perfectionist culture, a high well, and overachiever culture. And that is one of the ways in which there's a tension here between yeah. coming out and acknowledging that, you know, you also need some support um, in order to have healthy mental wellness. And it starts from 
first year law school really is, is, you know, what we really are aware of from our position, uh, working with so many law students, you know, the other, one of the other kind of big topics that you and Teresa touched on was this issue, as you were talking about in the intro of paralegals and whether paralegals in Ontario should be licensed to provide at least some family law services. Dare I say yawn? It seems like we've been talking about this for so long. Yes, absolutely. It is a God where it feels like this conversation is just being repeated over and over again. But uh, it's it's certainly been interesting over the last few weeks to see we were we were at NSRLP, you know, as um, understandably, Teresa needs to be kind of neutral on this issue. Um, NSRLP has no such obligation. And our our we have a position. Our position is very much in support of this proposal. We do feel that uh, paralegals should be licensed to provide some family legal services, you know, have been frustrated with the kind of stops and starts over the years of this in Ontario in particular. And uh, just to, you know, if you're looking for a little more context on that history, we put out um, a couple of months ago, I believe, a post, which I will link to when we put the podcast up, um, explaining the timeline of paralegals and family legal services uh, with the LSO. So you'll find that on on our website, along with a really great letter of support that Julie wrote on behalf of the NSRLP, uh, voicing our thoughts on on this issue. And, you know, I would also encourage people listening, if you're frustrated, as we are somewhat, by the postponement of the, the vote, because presumably it was felt that there weren't going to be enough votes to get it through, Please, you know, make your support for this proposal for the at least the option of paralegals offering some forms of family legal services in what will be, you know, a monitored experiment to begin Mm -hmm. with. Please, you know, tweet at the LSO. You can tag them on Facebook, voice your opinion. NSRLP has already put in the results of some focus groups that we ran on this subject uh, for the uh, the consultation process. So, you know, please do feel free to step up and make your voice heard on this, because I think that one of the things that it's sometimes very difficult to get across to the benches in convocation is that the public users of the system have, a, have an opinion on this too, and they need to be listened to. Absolutely. So yes, please, if you're so inclined, uh, speak up and um, voice your opinion there. And speaking of speaking up, uh, Teresa very kindly has agreed to um, potentially come back on the podcast uh, so that she can answer questions from listeners. So if you have questions for Teresa um, about anything to do with the law society, uh, your thoughts on um, regulations of lawyers, your thoughts on uh, paralegals, anything else, any questions you have for her, please send them to us at representingyourself at gmail.com. And we will compile those. And hopefully if we get enough, uh, we would love to have Teresa back to answer those questions oh, in I another episode. We're going to have enough. I think so too. We do, of course, reserve the right to select the questions, but believe me, um, I think that Teresa is up for this and we would certainly like um, you, our listeners, to come up with the questions that you would like the leader of the legal profession in Ontario to answer. Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Shannon Meikle, and I'll be your news correspondent for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. 
For listeners who aren't familiar, this segment recaps access to justice news from the last few weeks. This episode will be talking about a new family law tort that was established at the Ontario Superior Court in favor of an SRL who made the novel claims herself. We'll also be talking about a new petition before the House of Commons that seeks to hold judges accountable for their mistakes. First up is the novel tort established in favor of an SRL. For those who aren't familiar, a tort is a remedy for individual loss or harm that isn't criminal. In other words, if someone has harmed you in some way and they haven't technically done anything illegal, a tort is the kind of claim you would make to get some kind of remedy. Establishing a new tort means that litigants are essentially given a new tool to use to seek compensation or justice for the damage that they've suffered. In the present case, Aluwalia versus Aluwalia, Miss Aluwalia was self-represented. She was able to establish to the court that she'd suffered 16 years of abuse by her former husband. And she argued that receiving spousal support wouldn't be adequate compensation for those years of harm. In other words, those years of harm warranted additional damages above just, you know, sort of spousal support following the separation. The judge agreed that Ms. Aluwalia deserved some additional damages. So the tort of family violence was established. It was imported from America to award Ms. Aluwalia an additional 150000 in damages. Establishing a new tort is a pretty big deal. It's something that the court has to consider very carefully. So this is a pretty incredible thing that Ms. Aluwalia accomplished, and it's a fantastic example of the things that SRLs can accomplish in court. Our second piece of news is that Member of Parliament Etienne van Stenberg of the NDP party has initiated a petition before the House of Commons for complaints against federal judges to be reviewed by a joint panel of other judges and citizens. Currently, complaints are only reviewed by the judiciary. So what happens now is when a complaint is made against a judge, that complaint is only reviewed by other judges. And according to Etienne van Steenberg, this is potentially a biased system where judges can protect their friends and colleagues. In our recent report on the barriers to accommodation faced by cognitively disabled SRLs, the NSRLP recommended that judges receive additional training on how to properly handle accommodations. This petition sort of mirrors that request because it also acknowledges that judges need to be held accountable and that they shouldn't be viewed as infallible. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and join us next episode for another interesting discussion 